Several years ago, I was in a little place in northern Kenya called Gatap, and we arrived there by flying in a little missionary airplane up the up the um, the valley, the Rift Valley. It was the most spectacular place to see um, flocks of flamingos rising up underneath us, you know, all all pink. Um, we we flew into the mountains because there was a, a canyon where my friend, the pilot, knew there were some elephant, and the most frightening thing was that when we were into that canyon, he said, uh-oh. And when pilots say, uh-oh, that's not usually a good sign. And he said, I think I have the wrong canyon. I'm not, I'm not sure you can get out of this one. So he was flying a little Cessna, and I, I think its height, you know, its ceiling was 10,000 feet or something like that. And there were mountains all around us. However, when we got to, to Gatab, the place where they are stationed, when we came into the little house that they were living in, the the sort of back shed on the way into the house that had um, a mud floor was was incredibly hacked up. It was it was like we walked in and Chuck looked at the floor and he he called out to Susan, his wife, and said, "Susan, what happened here?" And as we looked at the floor, it was just there was something. Um, animal-like or something scattered on the floor and the floor was chopped to pieces. And she said, all I know is it was yellow and I stood against it in the name of Christ and I killed it and it's dead and I'm sorry about the floor. Um, I'm not sure that that reminded me of this, but it was a good story to tell you. Um, The person we're looking at today is John the Baptist. And one of the things that John the Baptist is noted for um, is his ability to call down judgment and to call a spade a spade. And so when particular people came out to hear him, because he was the the coolest guy in town in terms of listening to and wondering about, uh, when he saw them coming, these Sadducees and the like, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to escape from the judgment to come? Now, I, I suppose if we began sermons like that in here, we would clear the place out, right? That, that's not what people came to hear, want to hear. But John the Baptist is a great example of the type 8 in the Enneagrams. And we're going to have a look at him today as um, we do a little bit of troubleshooting. And I'm going to read to you one of the accounts about John the Baptist. Uh, The most familiar one is probably John. John chapter 1 begins. And I remember years and years ago, there was a famous preacher. He still is a famous preacher called Chuck Swindoll. And he preached a sermon on John 1. And it's it's one of those perfect homiletic um, sort of crafting use of Scripture. The verse that he quoted was, there was a man sent from from God whose name was John. And I just remember being you know, in awe of his ability to take those three simple statements and bring them home so that you all left thinking, I wish I could be a man called John, um, and I wish I could be that kind of person. Here's what um, the Lucan version says about this. When crowds of people came out for baptism because it was the popular thing to do, John exploded, brood of snakes. What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snakeskins is going to deflect God's judgment? It's your life that must change, not your skin. 
And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham was father. Being a child of Abraham is neither here nor there. Children of Abraham are a dime a dozen. God can make children from stones if he wants. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes in the fire. The crowd asked him, then what are we supposed to do? If you have two coats, give one away, he said. Do the same with your food. Tax men also came to be baptized and said, teacher, what should we do? He told them, no more extortion. Collect only what is required by law. Soldiers asked him, and, and what should we do? He told them, no shakedowns, no blackmail, and be content with your rations. The interest of the people by now was building. They were all beginning to wonder, could this John be the Messiah? But John intervened. I'm baptizing you here in the river. The main character in this drama, to whom I'm a mere stagehand, will ignite the kingdom of life, of fire, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false he'll put out with the trash to be burned. There was a lot more of this. Words that gave strength to the people. Words that put heart in them. The message. But Herod, the ruler, stung by John's rebuke in the matter of Herodias, his brother's wife, capped his long string of evil deeds with this outrage. He put John in jail. You remember the rest of the story of John and what ultimately happened to him. In what way do we learn um, to be a type eight kind of a person as we follow the example of John? Let me just bring you back to some of the things that we've learned so far. Um, we have suggested that these various types are maybe the fragments of a whole personality, that, that in the fall, um, our, our personalities were, have been fragmented and we've ended up um, in one particular expression of our personality. And maybe that becomes the box um, that we need to sort out and say, are there things in this box that I like in this box and that are useful in this box? Or are there things that I need to throw out of this box? Do I need to get out of the box? Or why do I tend to behave this way over and over again. What is it about me that I need to understand? So we, we've seen that the going around the circle, uh, there's the need to be perfect, there's the need to be needed, there's the need to succeed, the need to be special, the need to perceive, the need to be secure, the need to avoid pain, and then the need to be against, which is the type that we're looking at today. And finally, the need to avoid, which will be our final consideration next Sunday. Have you ever met anybody who has the need to be against? Um, maybe you've been on a board or in a committee, and there's that one person who always sort of raises a hand and says, I, I disagree. I once had an elder, not in this church, um, but we ended up several board meetings by his wanting to make this comment. And as I think back on it, it's, it's very humorous now, and we, we've made up. Um, but he would say, uh, for the minutes, I'm against Ian's initiatives. <laughs> it's like, are you serious? So after I had left the church, the elders actually sent a little contingency, and they said, we think we maybe should have stood up against the person who said that thing. And they wanted my forgiveness and granted 
it came, but it was it was almost uh, okay. The meeting's almost over. When is that statement going to be made? But the person had a very significant contribution to make, um, and as he would understand himself and would temper the contribution, it could be very, very valuable for everyone's growth. But at the same time, it could be very destructive because it would feel as though, well, we're all on the same page except this person tends to bring up the thing that we didn't really want to talk about or we thought we had dealt with or, or whatever it is. And so the, the person who has this way of being needs to be very wise because the potential for incredible good is certainly his or hers. But you may need to be ready to be a John the Baptist. I mean, are you willing to put on camel hair tied up with a leather thong and eat locusts um, dipped in wild honey? Have you ever eaten a locust? I'm not sure. Um, So there's something about this type that draws this kind of unique um, sort of startling presence, and that's certainly what John the Baptist was like. As we think about the way that um, these things have been understood and how, how they move around, the need to be against has an arrow pulling towards it, which, as we've said, is when the person is doing well, this is the, the other type that she or he will reach to. So the point here is that when a type 8 is well um, sort of healed and understood by himself and by others, when he has or she has an equilibrium, um, then the person can sort of reach over to the need to be needed. And that will bring about the kind of sensitivity and the, and the kind of warmth that may be absent if um, he's or she's in kind of a, a rougher state. The other way that this can reach is uh, the, the, the need to perceive, which can often be um, a mulling over and, and maybe um, bearing grudges and judgments and those sorts of things that begin to fester inside the person's personality. So there's already the bent to be strong, and there's the ability to reach out to um, your your warm side of being needed and needing to be needed, uh, and that needs to be tempered against uh, the propensity to just sort of sulk all the way through this. And if you are an eight, um, you'll probably be going through the same thing that everybody does when they identify themselves in the type. Um, you're both horrified and delighted, right? And as, as we've said, it, I'm not sure that people often settle into one and understand that that's the type that belongs to them. Maybe in different times of life, maybe in different situations of life, we kind of work our way around. And maybe the thing to do is just sort of think about this, go around and say, well, I think right now in my life, I am this kind of a person. Um, Maybe I'd like to um, sort of soften that up, or maybe I'd like to sharpen that up. Uh, But if the need to be against is your bent, it would be characterized something like this. You are a person who is independent and self-sufficient. 
You have a fierce and confident look. You have determination and stamina, very energetic and busy, a fiery passion and power. You're stubborn and headstrong. You're serious about control over the environment. I knew a person for quite a few years who was an eight and was, um, without using the Enneagram terminology, was quite willing uh, to call himself an eight. He was, at the time, the president of Youth for Christ in Canada. And he convinced me to go with him one time to Grenada. It was just after Hurricane Ivan. And we were going to, to have some meetings with the church leaders and, and Youth for Christ workers. And he is a person who needed a lot of cleanup after him because of the wreckage that his presence would bring. But the wreckage that he brought was phenomenal. We, he, he wanted to introduce some curriculum, I think it was, and some funding to the education system. And so, uh, and he wanted me to drive the rented car on the wrong side of the road because he wanted me to do it, and so he told me to do it. And we pulled up at these, the parliament buildings, I guess they were, and he, he walked up, told me to get out of the car, and we went into the building, and there was a security guard, and the security guard said, sir, can I help you? And he said, we're here to see the Secretary of Education. I looked over at him, I said, Bob, no we're not, are we? And the security guard looked at him as well with this sort of confused look and said, is he expecting you? And Bob said, of course he is. I said, is he expecting us? Well, um, so in a few minutes, we were told to just wait. And a few minutes later, this guard came back, and he was looking kind of baffled. And he said, the secretary will see you now. The secretary never sees anybody, but he will see you now. So we walked into the secretary's office, and this rather austere person looked over his desk at us and said, and what can I do for you? And Bob said, we're here because the Lord Jesus Christ has sent us here with a message for you that's going to help the people of your country. And the secretary said, now I'm interested. And off we went. I would never have had the audacity to try any of that. Um, and, and yet that was the, the bent of his personality when yielded to the Lord for good and yielded in the kingdom, would, against all odds, believe into the things that would bring the growth of the kingdom and the gospel of Christ. Um, if you are this kind of person, and John the Baptist rings true for you a little bit, maybe you need to have a way to sort of sort through um, what your disposition is in this role with your unique personality in this world. It maybe is the personality of a prophet. And as we think about the, the apept gifts of Ephesians 4, we know that people may well be sorted into being apostles or prophets or evangelists or pastors or teachers. And depending on the gifting that you have, um, your affect will be different in the way that you interface with the world and in the kingdom and for the kingdom. And if you have a gift of prophecy, it is a tender, fragile gift. As people have come to me over the years and suggested that they may be feeling that they have the gift of prophecy, they almost always come with this sort of tentative, 
I think I might be a prophet, and it kind of scares me to death. And what I will say then is that it's good that it scares you to death because it's a very powerful um, role, a very powerful ministry, but a very necessary one. The prophet is the one who is willing to speak against. The prophet is the willing to be the one who says no when everybody else is saying, yeah, sure, it's good. The prophet is the one who tends to bring the word of God to bear on a situation. Uh, I worked for many years on a mission board with a guy who was an Air Canada captain. And Bruce was a delightful man. And I, I can still remember the number of conversations that we had where we were going around the table on one issue or another. And Bruce would always be sitting with his head down and his Bible open. And sure as anything, well into the conversation, he would just say, guys, does this verse maybe speak to that? And you could almost see the shudder around the room as people go, oh my goodness, it does. And a conversation might have been going one way, but by the prophetic use of God's word, Bruce could stop that conversation in its track, and he could bring the kind of enlightenment that we desperately needed to have. So we can often revert to our best human ideas. Even, you know, we'll start a meeting and thank God for his presence, and then at the end of the meeting, thank God that he was here. And then you feel like asking, but did we listen to God at all? Did he say anything in this meeting? Was he present with us? And in what way was he? And Bruce would always, with this prophetic gift, just say, here's a verse of scripture or a passage of scripture or an idea of scripture that seems to be pertinent. What do you think? If you are a prophetic kind of person, and if we link being a prophetic kind of person to the type 8, you may need to have a fix on your proper posture in the church, uh, in the world, in your family, in your friendships. And the way that I have characterized that in the past is to simply say that our relationship with the world, which is the world of people, God so loved the world, and we know that, but what is our sort of juxtaposition um, with the, the kind of resistance of the world and towards the world that is proper and our belongingness in the world? Because we do belong here. We were born here, we live here, we're staying here. So how do we relate to the world? Do we hate the world or do we love the world? Do we hate the world too much and love the world or love the world too much? Um, one of the ways that I think we can sort through that is to say, my posture is that I am in the world, for the world, against the world. And if you're Irish enough, that will make perfect sense to you. But what, what, what sense does it make? We are in the world. Jesus said, I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world. That's not what I'm praying for. But I'm praying that you will keep them from the evil one. And there's the difference. We are in the world, and we are for the world. The world needs to know of the love of God, the love of Christ through us. And at the moment... The way the world judges the posture of evangelicalism is that it does not consider that we are for the people of the world. 
they will cite the various people that they know we're not for, um, and they will um, neatly make us a political movement and hardly ever say as the first thing that comes to mind that we are for the world, that we love the world of people. We're perceived as judging the world of people. And even when we don't feel that we are or don't want to be those kinds of people, we need to understand that we are for the world. That when we meet people, um, it should ooze from us that we are for them. Um, because what we feel towards them is not judgment, is not condemnation. We feel love. And the more we understand the character of God, and the more we grasp what we call the hermeneutic of love, the more we grasp that that's the way that we are to present. That's the way that we're to sort. First and foremost, love God, love your neighbors. So we are in the world, and we're for the world, but prophetically we are against the world. We need to speak against the ways in which this world is fallen and the ways in which the, the one who is the prince of this world has the world in his sway. And that is a tricky kind of a balance, tricky kind of a line to walk. And for the person who is a type 8, there is particularly a calling that says, you know how to do this. There is something in the way that you're wired that lets you be the kind of person who is in the world, for the world, and against the world at the same time. We don't want to have the Enneagram put us in a box. We want to help us get out of our box. So maybe if your box is a type 8 box, um, there are ways that that can, can trip you up without proper understanding and proper growth. Um, and you, you may want to get out of it for a little while and, and say, okay, let, let me be in a safe and good place, and I'm going to go to the orchard. So the orchard in this case is the orchard of needing to be needed, and so pull yourself away from your high horse and go towards the people with whom you're in relationship, and guard against the propensity to be so right that people just don't want to have any conversation with you. It's a tricky type to be. And John the Baptist knew full well it was tricky to be him. From birth, he uh, was a person under vow. He was a person called by God. And so there's that lovely sermon from Swindoll that says there was a man called John. Um, he was particularly called by God so that he could open the way to the light that was coming into the world, who was his cousin, was the cousin Jesus the Messiah. Um, but he had to be willing to wear those camel hair skins and leather belt and eat honey and wild, or wild uh, locusts. How, how different are you going to be comfortable to be to bring about the purposes that God has for you? How courageous will you be when you know that there's something should be said and you know that you could say it 
and you feel that you're in a safe place with the people around you who know that you need them and that they need you, um, will you say what has been called the last 10% or maybe 90% of something has been talked about, but there's 10% where all the difference is found? And you may need to say, can I just bring in the last 10%? Or in a conflict conversation where we can ask one another, have you said everything? Or is there 10% that you've not come forward with? I need to hear the 10%. We need to love and accept and welcome type 8s. They need to function carefully, prayerfully, uh, and prophetically. And together, we can see how is it that we each really relate to one another. If we go back to the APEPT, um, for a few years, I had the, the fun job of being a co-teacher with two others and a possible third other teacher. But among the three of us, there was one who was apostolic, there was one who was prophetic, and there was one who um, was pastoral. And we would literally decide whether this sermon should be preached by an apostle, a prophet, or a pastor. And I don't know how that came to us. But it, it became very practical where we would, we would say, um, Doug, it would be great to hear this from Brad because he'd be passionate about it as a prophet. But you would be more, more pastoral about it. You, you will step out from behind the, the stand and you will open your arms and talk to people and beg them to understand what you're saying and express your love and concern for them. Or there could be me who will get up and say, so let's start something new. I think we should begin something in an apostolic way. And each of us would look at the other and say, no, this is not for you to preach. That's for him to preach. And we didn't actually um, take votes, but we did come to consensus. And just understanding the differences between us in, in ways that we understand are all fragmented, but they contribute to a whole as we are given to the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ, the love of God for uh, our neighbor as well as ourselves. Why don't we pray about this and then we'll carry on. Father, thank you for the, the, the dramatic story of John the Baptist and uh, the images that come to our minds, um, seeing this wild man in the wilderness baptizing people and calling down judgment upon those who are uh, pretentiously religious. Um, thank you, Father, that each time we look at one of these characters in Scripture, we see some of ourselves, we see some of others, and we begin to piece together um, th the lovely diversity of humankind and the, the lovely diversity within the body of Christ. And we realize that it is true, that there are different members with different gifts, but we're all one body. Thank you for that truth and for that realization. In Jesus' name we pray.